All right, gentlemen, this cold open comes from listener Chris. He found this question on Twitter and he's passed it along to us because he wants to know what we would answer. Twitter user at Shady Boy Band says, if you were the final girl, what song would you want to play at the end of a movie when you grab a shotgun and start fucking shit up? I guess we got to put ourselves in the role of the final female survivor. Well, that's easy, man. It's a man's 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 world by James Brown. <laughs> done and done. I'm out. <laughs> this is a man's world. But it wouldn't be nothing. Nothing. Without a woman or a girl. And how are we supposed to follow that up? <laughs> uh, interesting, actually, I'd say it's interesting because my choice is also from a similar era. I went with "Rip It Up" by Lil Richard. Well, it's Saturday night, and I just got paid. Time money, don't try to save. My heart said, "Go, go." Have a time for Saturday night, nah. Feel fine, gonna rock it up. I'm gonna rip it up. Yeah, it's a very high octave song, but uh, but I thought it'd be a great one. And I don't think it's been used before. It was hard to come up with ones that like. Uh, People ha- There's so many good ones out there already that have been used, but that's my choice. I don't think Long Tall Sally's been used in, during a like final fight scene. That'd be a good one, too. This has got high energy. Yeah, that's true. You know, John, speaking on uh, songs that are used and maybe overused, one of the ones that seems really lazily slapped on everything these days would be like Joan Jett's Bad Reputation, right? Yeah. Oh, look, it's the lady gonna fuck some shit up. Better cue that Joan Jett tune. Okay, and nobody has managed to do it better than Shrek. Choice two, <laughs> Laverne and Shirley theme song. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, I decided to go with a metal band that I've been listening to for quite some time um, by the name of Arch Enemy, uh, particularly the song Nemesis. I'm just really a fan of melodic chugging metal music. <laughs> And what made this one um, particularly interesting to me is when I first heard this band, the singer has such a growl to it. The guttural sound of the the voice and the singer, I had no idea it was a female singer, man. So one of the things I love doing is playing this band for people and be like, check this out. And then be like, did you know that's a lady? And they're just like, what? <laughs> like, you won't know it's a female until you, like, pull up a picture of the band. So I guess the tone of my movie would be something way more violent and bloody based on that. John, what would your tone of the movie Little Richard uh, song be? Oh, that's a good question. It'd have to be, like, a, a, a lot lighter than a heavy metal song, for sure. It would be one like uh, like the final shootout in Django Unchained. A situation <laughs> like that. <laughs> so still ultra-violent, but uh, maybe not as serious? Yeah. Because that ending scene, while it was crazy bloody, it was just so over the top, it was almost... I don't even know what this, what you would call that. I wouldn't say cartoonish because it was so bloody, but man, was it just unbelievable yeah. the amount of blood being splashed around everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like farcical. Like it was just so over the top. Uh, yeah, I would think it'd have to be something like that. Uh, and that would jive really well with the, with the song. Well, what uh, you said you had a couple other options you were mulling over. What were those? Well, and then I thought, okay, if it were like a little cartoony, I was thinking like Black and Yellow by Wiz Khalifa. And then I thought 
Shook Ones by Mob Deep would be a real good dark ending. And in my mind, I was picturing like in uh, Pulp Fiction when they finish the gimp and Vin Raines is like, I'm pretty fucking far from okay. That would be like the kind of theme where Shook Ones, I think, would work really well. Uh, yeah, I think that would fit in that tone. But I was actually going to say Garrett's uh, song choice might fit a Pulp Fiction movie better, too. Yeah, mine's, mine was just mostly just kind of be like, just this like kind of like, that's it. Fed up, taking things. Just I feel like, you know, Man's World by James Brown just is a really good kind of like, I mean, it's a bit on the nose. And I realize that. And I, I personally have a problem when movies take something that's too on the nose, like in that third Star Trek film they remade where it was like they played Sabotage by Beastie Boys when they had to sabotage the other ships with sound. I was like, all right, this is a little bit too fucking on the nose. But I don't know. I just feel like, you know, it'd be a really good kind of like counterpoint to a final girl, like just fucking shit up, you know, maybe like getting revenge on people. You know, Garrett, the you, you mentioned that. And every time something horrible like that happens, the Sabotage song for Star Trek Three just utterly obliterated that movie for me. I just, at that point, I was like, I am so fucking over this movie right now. I'm about to walk out, like, cringing. I feel like the whoever gets to choose the music thinks they are just the cleverest person on the planet when they put in, hey, look, the song is directly talking about what we're showing you on film. It's like, bro, have a little more nuance and a little more class. You don't have to be so beating on the head with it. What's well, like in Captain Marvel when they played I'm Just a Girl by No Doubt? I was like, yo, look, I'm fine with like this female, like, you know, soundtrack that we've had so far. I completely applaud it. I expected that song to be in there. I love that song, actually. I'm totally fine. I just felt when they started playing it, it just felt so like, get it? And I was like, yeah, no, no, we got it, movie. Like, I hate when movies pander to me through a soundtrack. And again, maybe that's just the way I'm perceiving it, but ooh. Yeah, it's completely pandering, and, and it's it's insulting to a degree. So listeners and people, if you're making movies out there, be a little better with the soundtrack. Make it one that we want to purchase on vinyl and waste uh, uh, hours listening to. You should really be asking yourself, does this soundtrack slap? And if you can't say yes, uh, do better. Like Mark said, be better. Hey, all you creatures from cyberspace. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Grave Talk podcast. My name is Mark. Again, joined with John and Garrett. Fellas, we're back for another episode today. How we doing? Watching the world burn around us. It's literally on fire in some parts of the country. That's true. It's been a fucking struggle this week, man. Just, you know, yeah, mind boggling, but whatever. We're here to talk about movies. Let's Ugh, we'll focus on that for now. All right. Well, what have you guys been up to since last time? Not very much. Uh, I've actually not watched that many movies, uh, let alone horror movies. I rewatched The Mummy because it went on sale on iTunes, so I bought it in 4K HDR. So uh, that was a great experience. Uh, I won't beat it to death because everyone by now definitely knows my love of The Mummy. Um, and then I rewatched Psycho uh, from, what, 1960? Amazing, amazing film. Right on. Getting your classic movie watching on. Two different eras, but both of them hold up in your opinion, huh? Oh, definitely. I actually bought The Mummy uh, as a pack on iTunes so I can see the sequels because I really don't remember them at all. But the original 1999 Mummy, uh, one of the the greats. Um, And then, yeah, Psycho, also a spectacular film in a different way. I mean, it's in 
every way better than the mummy uh but uh but also holds up solidly considering it's man what 40 like 60 years old so Good job, Hitchcock. Does that box set have uh, Abbott and Costello meet the mummy in it? Oh, that would have been amazing. But no, it only has the three main mummy movies. What I learned, so here's your mummy deep cuts. So you may or may not know there was a Scorpion King spinoff with The Rock. Apparently, they also made like eight of those movies uh, that went direct to DVD. So there's a whole mummy verse that I do not know about, and I'm debating if i can find them for cheap or if they're streaming somewhere uh for free i, I might investigate what uh, what the scorpion king spin-off universe is like wow um good luck <laughs> <laughs> well speaking of classic monsters um it looks like universal is going to take another crack at their monster line uh it was just announced that they're going to bring the wolfman back with ryan gosling oh jesus christ don't know if that's a good idea or not i don't know if that dude has the range to be the wolfman what do you guys think of this you don't want my opinion on this i wolfman is the greatest monster ever created when it comes to classic universal monsters i mean i got nothing against ryan gosling personally i don't think his i don't think he's a bad actor i just don't know i don't think he has the presence to pull off like incredibly menacing but i wonder if they're gonna do it like a bruce wayne batman thing where like he's supposed to be a nice guy but oh my god the curse and when he's in like wolf mode he's just snarling and shit i want to know if they're gonna make wolfman talk like that's the thing that i worry about so i don't know man it's just you know, you've had two strikes. Do you really want to risk striking out Universal? Like, just let it go. You fucking gave it two shots. You didn't make it land. Just deuces. Time to pack it up, huh? Yeah, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, can't get fooled again. Well, what was the last attempt? Was it the Benicio Del Toro one in like 2010 or whatever it was? Yeah, it was the Benicio Del Toro one, which did okay. And I think that was the like, oh man, we should do a whole monster universe thing. Because then the next up was The Mummy, right? With Tom Cruise. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Did the Invisible Man not count? I don't know if that... I don't, can't even remember. The one that just came out uh, with Elizabeth Moss. I don't know if it counts, but did you see it? Yeah, it was really good. It's really good. It's total sleeper hit. Yeah, but the way it is, though, I don't know if it falls in the pantheon of keeping true to the the uh, original Universal Monsters line, or if this is just a concept that someone picked. But I mean, they call it the Invisible Man, so they had to have approval to some degree. Yeah, tough to say. Maybe it does. If it does, then they went one for three. Uh, but still not great odds. Uh, and I, yeah, I don't know that the Wolfman movie is going to be good. I got a list here from Bloody Disgusting saying what they currently have in the works. Um, something called Dark Army. There's a movie called Renfield coming out. Garrett, I don't know if you know this, but they're making a Monster Mash musical. Matt, we talked about this already. Did we? We talked about that. And remember I said it could be, it could possibly be amazing, but it could also be absolutely terrible. I, I'm going to be honest. I, in the past, I've been quick to judge things that I love and I see it so often from people, you know, nowadays. I, they might surprise me. They might turn out like one of the coolest fucking musicals with one of the absolute, not what one of, the absolute greatest song ever created. So I'm going to give it a shot. But man, I am, I am holding my breath. I, I really hope they do well because man, I cannot take this. With all the things that have happened in 2020, I cannot take a fucking like hit to the Monster Mash. Like if it's, <laughs> we got to move on, move on. Touching a nerve. That's fair. But, you know, what if what if, if they're going to do this Monster Universe thing still, what if they just went with Brendan Fraser, dude? What if they just said, fuck that uh, Tom Cruise one, 
and they just built the universe and they brought Brendan Fraser back. I think that would be kind of a fan favorite idea. I think people would like that. I mean, you know I'm in. Give me the Frasier verse. Uh, I'm, I'm sign me up. Now the Frasier verse is totally different because that would include Encino Man, probably Monkey Bone, George of the Jungle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the team I want to see. Let me see Frasier from the Mummy. I can't remember his name. Uh, George from the Jungle and Encino Man in a three-person like detective agency. I mean, the movie writes itself. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that uh, Wolfman movie. Um, one of us will see it, I'm sure. I still need to watch that Invisible Man one. You guys are talking it up a lot. I just don't want to spend 20 bucks on it. I'm waiting for it to go down in price. Well, it'll eventually come out for like purchase. But I mean, yeah, it's honestly, it's worth it, dude. Um, it's, it's worth the price of admission. Right on. I'll put that on the list. Um, the only thing I'll mention at this point is after our last episode, I decided I need to just hunker down and finish watching 1978's Dawn of the Dead. I had seen it in bits and pieces uh, back in the day. This movie is so hard to find, guys, uh, unless you just go straight to YouTube where you can watch it in its entirety. But again, we're looking at one of these classic movies that isn't available for purchase anywhere on any digital platform, and the DVDs are going for like 70 to 80 bucks. And I'm like, what is happening with this movie? Wait, really? Yeah, man. If you go check Amazon right now, they, they want a lot of money for them physical copies. Dude, I have a special edition physical copy of it. That's awesome. You're, you're going to go make some money now, huh? <laughs> hey, I got to keep the lights on. We've talked about how I do this, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway, this movie, Garrett, I've uh, completely turned my opinion around on this original, and I think it's overhyped. I can appreciate what it did for the zombie genre in the 70s, but it doesn't hold my attention as much as I thought it would. Day of the Dead is a clear superior movie to this one. I, I know. I, I Again, I'm not... I'm not taking joy in this because I know how much people love Dawn, but like, I don't think many people have revisited Dawn. Like day is the superior film and night of is better than Dawn in my opinion as well. But yeah, I mean, I love Dawn of the dead for what it is, but it is definitely the weakest of the three. And I just, I never understand why people had this like, yo, that's the best one. I'm like, explain yourself. <laughs> Let's got a helicopter. Boom. Ooh. Checkmate. <laughs> they had a chopper in day too, though. Just to be fair, the, uh, the movie starts off with them landing a chopper in a city. So it wasn't as big a chopper budget, but it existed in Day of the Dead. 80% of Don's budget was a chopper budget. But no, I agree with y'all. I, um... I started watching this movie and then had to pause it and forgot that I was watching it for like 18 hours. And I was like, oh shit, I never finished that movie. So that's my opinion of Dawn of the Dead. Uh, it's not great. Uh, but if anything, this one has made me want to go back and revisit the remake now. Um, again, that movie came out at a time where we were still getting accustomed to the fast moving zombies. Uh, so it's been quite some time since I've seen that. Honestly, that remake is not a bad film. I really enjoy that remake except for two scenes. There's like not even a scene in one remember that dude who was like super popular for like doing like lounge versions of like popular songs richard cheese yeah they had the like the down with the sickness song sung in that like little lounge song i i just don't like that like it's just not my jam at all so like that plays in like the opening credits i think and i was like oh god and then the, the zombie baby those two things if we could remove those two things from that film i would love the remake i thought the remake was pretty fantastic honestly compared to the original well, let me ask you a question why what is it about the zombie baby I, i'll give you the richard cheese thing at the time i thought it was funny because i was enjoying his 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 album of all those lounge covers because i thought it was clever at the time obviously it's a little played out now but uh the uh what is it about the zombie baby thing that uh, bothered you so much to the uh, to the lounge music thing, like 
I'll, I'll listen to the album. I don't have a problem in that context, but like when you put it into a movie, it, I don't know, it really like kind of just set the tone wrong for me. But the zombie baby scene, ugh, okay, first off, I don't see how that would be possible. I don't see how you get infected, your baby is in a complete zombie, but you're totally fine. Like, I'm sorry, I just don't buy that. Number two, they spent so long hyping that up of like, oh my God, there could be something wrong with the baby. Oh no, she's pregnant. Oh my God, what if she gives birth? Blah, 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 blah. All for this buildup of her secretly giving birth to this baby and then having it jump out and attack the dude who delivered it. And so, I mean, first off, it's a newborn baby. It ain't jumping. All right. I don't even care. Michael Jordan wasn't jumping out the womb. Okay. (laughs) But it was, I don't know. It was just one of these moments where it was like, okay, all right. Okay. And then it's like, it finally like pays off and it's like, oh God, that's what, I don't know. It was pointless to me. And if anybody out there liked it, you're you're wrong. But um, (laughs) no, I mean, honestly, it's just like, I don't know. they, They spent so much time like trying to make me give a shit about that. Then when it finally paid off, I was like, that's garbage. <laughs> wow. I'll give you that the buildup was kind of a lot, right? The the thing about the baby turning, though, is I think it turned when the mother turned. She wasn't always a zombie, but then when she was giving birth, she was tied up and zombified. So I think through her metamorphosis into the zombie, the baby changed also. It was absolutely stupid when it jumped around and started spider monkeying around the scene. Like, I agree with you there. The uh, the zombie shouldn't have any ability or muscle that isn't developed yet that a, that a normal baby wouldn't have. There's no motor function there yet, you know what I mean? It hasn't been live enough to, to process that. So I totally agree with you on that. I mean, I don't want this to sound too sick because, you know, we're only talking in like movie terms. But if they really wanted me to be like, oh, my God, like have her give birth to this baby. She's turning and like you're like, oh, my God. What's going to happen to this baby? She has the baby and then she snatches it out of the person's hands and then off camera, like fucking eats the baby. Like that would make me go like, holy shit, fuck this lady. Fuck what happened. Get the hell out of this mall. You know, like, like that would basically be like, okay, because it basically felt like the baby was safe the whole time until the baby got the upper hand. And again, a baby's not getting an upper hand in that situation. But yeah, I don't know. I just think there's different ways they could have done that to make me be like, oh, shit, this is actually super like fucked up and impactful. That's fair. I'm worried about revisiting at this point. I think it's going to feel definitely like a 2004 or five movie. Speaking of revisiting old movies that may or may not have held up, we should talk about the movie we watched. Yes, let's talk about the 1996 film The Frighteners. Uh, this one was directed by Peter Jackson, most famous of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but up to this point, he was only really known for um, some B-level horror films like Bad Taste or Dead Alive. If you guys haven't seen Dead Alive, I would recommend checking that one out. It's got a great zombie scene of a man and his mother going to dinner and her body parts are falling off into her soup as she's turning into a zombie. It's a, it's a, it's a really good scene. So this one, 1996, I didn't actually watch this one when it came out in the theaters. I saw the trailer, and for some reason, I just didn't want to see it. And I don't quite know why I felt that way. Because as a huge fan of Back to the Future, this Michael J. Fox horror movie should have been right up my alley at the time. But for whatever reason, I don't know why I didn't want to see it. Um, Did you guys watch this one when it came out? I did. This was rated R. Um, which baffles me. I mean, I get the like, maybe the like the concept at the time was kind of like, oh, that's really messed up. But yeah, compared to now, this movie is tame. 
This is one that we had uh, one of our friends go to Blockbuster Video and rent us when it came out on VHS because we still weren't old enough to uh, to rent it then. I remember the VHS box very vividly because it was one of those that you would, if you moved the, the VHS tape, um, the image was that, uh, what is that style called, Garrett, where the image actually moves around when you move the, the case? It's called lenticular. There you go. Thank you. Um, and it's uh, it's the tech of this movie is super proud of. They called up Terminator 2, and they're like, hey, you know that Morphe technology you guys had? We'd like to borrow that for a weekend and make a horror movie. Because holy shit, they, go, they just love that morphing out of the floor and out of the walls, and it's the, it's the thing that is showcased on their box art. And I don't know how many times they did that, uh, but in 2020, the morphing out of the wall effect doesn't quite hold up in my opinion. What do you guys think? I thought it was better than I expected it to be. I went in and thinking, okay, this movie's what, 25 years old. Uh, it's probably going to have really terrible CG. And I would say it just had kind of terrible CG. It, it was really, it's like at the level of like a, a sci-fi movie uh, CG. So I was like, it, it wasn't so bad. It was distracting, which is what I thought it would be when I went in. Um, I mean, Especially in the beginning, it was a little bit like oof, but uh, but mostly it was it was all right. I thought. Was this your first watch, John? No, I've seen this movie a few times. Yeah, I mean, it, it was surprising that you know, even though the the CG did feel a little dated, um, it was never bad enough to make me go like oof, CG. Like you know, it definitely was like okay. Um, the the camouflage effects when things in the wall and on the floor moved and it like kept the um, the the texture and the patterns of whatever it was moving through. Um, and when we, we describe this, imagine like, imagine like a sandworm or a snake like underneath the sand, and it's moving. The sand's kind of like um, adjusting its shape to something underneath it. It was kind of like that through walls and floors and ceilings and stuff. Um, but yeah, when the when the pattern stretched over that, that was when it was most noticeable to me, just because the pattern stretching just kind of was a little bit dated. But I mean, I don't know. I thought it worked okay, and even the ghost effects. I was okay with. Yeah, and, and I'm calling it out because of how often it's used, right? I, I don't think it's necessarily bad, but the amount of times they do that ghost in the walls or, or the floor uh, effect was just overdone, I think. Too many times is what I'm saying. Fair. Yeah, but the the ghost effects held up incredibly well, I thought. I thought that was uh, pretty much what it would look like today, if not anything better, because today we'd probably make it so over the top it would be distracting. But this was like, I thought was a really solid ghost effect. This was a Robert Zemeckis uh, produced movie also. So if you think about that, that's Ghostbusters, you know, like that's this had a very Ghostbusters Beetlejuice-esque vibe. Like like you said, John, the ghost effects Mm -hmm. are on par with what we'd see today. I mean, which when you think about is pretty fucking impressive since they did that in 96. Um, but yeah, the ghost effects were great. Mark, I agree with you. The the in the wall stuff went on a bit long, but that's my main cons- my main problem with this movie. Um, upon a rewatch after all this time, because I, I remember loving this movie back in the day. A, it didn't feel like a rated R movie, which kind of threw me off a little bit because the opening thing is like rated R for violence and terror. And I'm like, oh, I don't remember it being that scary. Fuck, I might have missed something. Uh, no, it's not terrifying at all. There are certain scenes, especially I think when they're showcasing CGI stuff, that do go on way too fucking long. Like they could have, yeah, you're right. They could have cut some of the the CG scenes down, and it would have been just as impactful. 
So I want to just mention something that I could not get out of my head and having Robert, maybe it's because Robert Zemeckis was attached to it, perhaps because we have Christopher Lloyd attached to this movie. Uh, But this movie is a film that blends live action actors against animated characters that are set off to solve a murder mystery. What does that remind you of, guys? Perhaps a little film called Who Framed Roger Rabbit? (laughs) It's similar in that sense. I'll give you that. But, I mean, Who Framed Roger Rabbit's like a million times better than this movie. And I like this movie. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I think that's kind of a stretch, Mark. I'm I'm not going to be able to follow you on that one. I mean, I can see the parallels that you're drawing, but I just think that they're just... They're so polar opposite of feel. For me, dude, this movie wanted to be an adult film, but it also wants to be a cartoon. And where does that land me? That lands me straight in the middle of Who Framed Roger Rabbit because that is an adult-style cartoon movie. Uh, yes, the actors who play the ghosts are definitely live-action people, but it's 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 clear that they're not on set with Michael J. Fox when they're interacting with him because you can check his eyes He's looking at a different direction sometimes and the actual events are going on. So that's kind of where I draw that parallel. The ghosts are very cartoonish to the point where I was having questions like, okay, what exactly am I supposed to be taking away of the ghost's ability to affect the real world here? There's a point where a ghost gets run over by a car and he's like a, a piece of rubber, like a Looney Tunes cartoon where he like pops himself back into shape there's so many cartoony elements to this ghost world that it just it was hitting the wrong tone of what i was looking for out of this movie you're right it's rated r but why is it rated r the only real violence comes whenever the ghosts are getting attacked by our villain of the of the movie right they get their faces slashed up the christopher lloyd ghost gets cut in half but it's not really that impactful, I think, because I saw all these characters as almost cartoons. One of my big notes is that this movie definitely needs more cartoon sound effects. Because, yes, <laughs> watching it, it feels like it's overly slapsticky at times. And the Danny Elfman soundtrack um, is one of his, you know, prime harpsichord pieces. But, um, man, yeah, it, it just felt like, like I said, there was times it felt like it wanted to be like a dark Beetlejuice and then those other times it felt like it wanted to be Ghostbusters. And then there were other times where it was just so far a Scooby-Doo episode that it was just like, if I heard like a laugh track and zoinks, I would not have blinked an eye. I would have been like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's what like the core failing of this movie is that it's so tonally inconsistent. Um, and it tries to be obviously, you know, as y'all have said, two different things. So it ends up doing neither well, because I do think there's some parts where it was a little, I don't know, not scary is not the right word, but if they had committed, it could have been scary. But I think in like 2020, um, now I see it and I think this was actually not a bad, like if I were to introduce like a teenager to horror, this might be a good movie, you know, to start him off with like a 12 or 13 year old because it isn't that scary and it's still kind of comedic. But if they're interested in horror, right, I think something like this would uh, scratch that itch for them without really terrifying them. That's a good point. But let me let me defend part of this story, not against you guys necessarily, but like the the concept itself, like the three acts of this movie um, are very interesting because act one feels like a Beetlejuice movie. Like, honestly, it just it just beat for beat. I was like, I'm in. OK, act two gets very weird and obscure and a few things happen, but it's like, I don't know. Act two is pretty weak for me, but act three gets fucking dark. Like when I don't think we've mentioned the actors in this movie, but uh, Jake Busey is the main villain 
and without giving away the spoiler, I'll wait for John to do that. Um, <laughs> one of the other characters who was involved in this plot, like towards the end when they they, they like make their transformation to like to reveal the plot line. Holy shit! I'm not gonna lie. I was freaked out still, even as an adult. I was like, "Man, that's fucked up." Like, so I think the concept of portraying that level of like natural born killers esque feel to the the plot line with these characters really kind of at '96 maybe kind of put people on edge. So maybe that's why I got rated R. But man, this this movie is it's good and it's also it leaves me wanting at the same time, which I don't know if that makes sense or not. Yeah, it reminds me that part, like the whole serial killer part, very much reminded me of Shocker. If any of y'all have seen that movie, uh, that plot line is expanded there uh, in a different direction, but very similar acting and story. And I was like, huh, all right, this is like a Armageddon Deep Impact situation. Well, let me tell you who's in the film, and then we'll get uh, further into it. So. Uh, this one stars Michael J. Fox as Frank Bannister, Trini Alvarado as Lucy Linsky, Peter Dobson as Ray Linsky, John Aston as the judge, Jeffrey Combs as Milton Dammers, D. Wallace as Patricia Bradley, Jake Busey as Johnny Bartlett, Chai McBride as Cyrus, Jim Fife as Stewart, Troy Evans as Sheriff Perry, R. Lee Emery as Hiles. Now, just take a quick pause. Wasn't the judge Christopher Lloyd, or was I mistaken the whole time? I don't think Christopher Lloyd was in this. Huh. Okay. I thought that was the the uh, the, the old cowboy, because he sounded a lot like that character. <laughs> see, I thought that that old cow... See, every character in this movie reminded me of another character from a different movie. Uh, Ray reminded me of Biff Tannen. Um, so when, when Michael J. Fox pulls up that guy's on, he's like, oh, my lawn! I was like, hello, big fly! Like... It, <laughs> It just felt like that so much, but um, no, I, that was that was definitely not because I think that's that's Sean Aston's dad, right, John Aston? Okay, well then that uh, that's my fault. I, I just completely assumed that that was that character because he was talking like him. Maybe because Back to the Future Three also happened, and he, he went back as a cowboy and all that shit. And also, the uh, there's bloopers of the Frighteners you can find on YouTube where Michael J. Fox kept calling the judge Doc. Oh, really? I think one of the funniest bloopers that happened in The Frighteners, and it happened a couple of times, was when um, was when Michael forgot what film he was in. We were doing this scene with uh, with uh, the judge, and and I was supposed to call out to him, and I just kept saying Doc from from Back to the Future. It was like some weird out of body thing. Yeah, little cook in the Pony Express, huh, Doc? They definitely played it in that style, so I I can see why you and Michael J. Fox think that. But uh turns out it is not him. Well, at first I thought it was the same actor who played the cowboy from House 2. Because that character <gasps> yeah. is like almost um, like beat for beat. I was like, oh my God, are these... Because the thing is, every character I thought was a character from a different movie. Because like, I thought Ray was a nod to Biff Tannen. I thought Arlie Emery's like drill sergeant character was fucking Hartman from Full Metal Jacket. I was like, I mean, he was. Oh, definitely. But like, I, I was like, are the names the same? Like, I didn't look up the names, but... Yeah, everything in this movie felt like either as a nod or homage or kind of like a, hey, check this out. So this one's sitting at a 63% on Rotten Tomatoes with the critics and a 71% with the audience. That's out of 63,017 reviews. And here's what the back of the VHS box has to say about the Frighteners. 
In the sleepy little town of Fairwater, a monstrous evil has awakened. An evil so powerful, its reach extends beyond the grave. Director Peter Jackson and executive producer Robert Zemeckis unleash a riveting thriller with the most spectacular special effects this side of the hereafter. For Frank Bannister, death is a great way to make a living, ridding haunted houses of their unwelcome guests. But as it happens, he's in cahoots with the very ghost he promises to evict. It's a perfect scam until Frank finds himself at the center of a dark, terrible mystery. A diabolical spirit is on a murderous rampage, and the whole town believes Frank is behind it. Desperate to find the true culprit and exorcise his own personal demons, Frank crosses the ultimate barrier into the shadowy realm where even death can't stop a killer. Boasting music by Danny Elfman and co-starring Trini Alvarada, Jeffrey Combs, and John Astin, the supernatural chiller is so fiendishly entertaining it's scary. Yeah, as far as they go, that's uh, that's pretty good for back of the box, I'd say. That's a decent back of the box. Yeah, not too bad. Now, this movie left me asking one burning question, and I'm going to give you that question now, guys. Do guns have souls? <laughs> Do guns have souls? God, I hope not. Do guns have souls? Because Arlie Emery has two ghost machine guns that are used to take down the enemy at the end of this movie. And I was sitting there, I was like, how is this even possible? I don't know. Michael G. Fox picks him up, and I, and this this point just really just like stuck with me. I'm like, I don't understand this movie's paranormal rules. Maybe you guys can help me out because it seems like the ghost can interact with humans and not interact with humans at different points of the movie when it's plot convenience. And then we have ghost weapons. So help me out here. Well, I think the ghost can conjure their own guns, and maybe they're shooting out pieces of their ectoplasm because like when. Michael J. Fox first goes to the uh, graveyard and we meet Arlie Emery. He switches into like a whole bunch of different outfits and he conjures machine guns and boxing gloves. So I think they can pick like maybe the the more advanced ghosts can pick their shape and form and any accessories and armaments that they might need. Yeah, that's that's what I got from it. So being a ghost means you have any ability you could possibly want at your fingertips. Is that what you're telling me? But it only affects other ghosts. Like, I don't think you could shoot somebody with a, like a, uh, not a human, but a living person with a ghost gun. I don't think that would be effectual. Okay. Second question for you then. How come the ghost souls have the exact same clothes on they were wearing when they were alive? Do clothes have souls? Maybe, well, I think those ghosts were just shit ghosts. If we assume Arlie Emery is the pinnacle of ghost power, he was able to change his clothing. That's a good point. I think I think that's definitely something to that because, I mean, he's all like, everybody get back in your graves. Like, he had control of that graveyard. Holy Jesus! Frank Bannister! Go ahead, I'll handle this. What the hell are you doing in my graveyard? You have been told to stay away! I am not one of your shitty little emanations, Bannister. You cannot push spirits around. You are scum, using spooks to put the brighteners on people. That makes me physically ill. Like, I don't know. Maybe he just was more tapped. Maybe he was more um, trained in the ways of the ghost. Yeah, he's like a level five ghost. Our ghosts are like level two ghosts. Or Michael J. Fox's ghosts. Yeah, get your shit together. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't leveled up yet. Uh, and maybe Michael J. Fox has uh, slowed their their leveling progress, if you will. I guess I will take that into consideration. 
but I feel like this movie could have done a better job of just establishing its paranormal rules because, like I said, a lot of it did seem like plot convenience. Like, we need the ghost to go ahead and touch this person in this scene, but not this scene. You know what I mean? Like, they have trouble, like, whenever you go into the ghost realm, you're falling through the ceiling, you're falling through the walls, you don't know how to be a ghost all that much, but then when they need to interact with the real world, they can whenever the plot needs them to. I think they're learning how to do it, right? Because when, like, uh, Michael J. Fox, late in the movie, becomes a ghost, he falls through the floor, but then he figures it out, right? He's like, oh, okay, here's how I ghost. Yeah. Uh, and he gets better at it as he goes through it until, uh, you know, he figures it out. Fair enough. Did you guys know that this was evidently, I just read this, was eventually was originally supposed to be a um, Tales from the Crypt episode? Mm, I did not know that. I think that would have actually probably been better. <laughs> Something tighter. I mean, they wouldn't have had the budget, so the effects would have been, uh, you know, obviously a lot shittier. But to your point, Mark, I think they were stretching an idea longer than uh, it could be stretched. And that led to some of the issues with this movie. I wonder how long is it? Is it 90 minutes? No, one hour and 50. Oh, man. See, tight 90 filmmakers. Y'all need to let me edit your films. <laughs> Get it. Every movie would be 88 minutes. John, I 100% agree with you. If this was like a tight, like 135, yeah, 135, shit, even 140, if you really want to stretch it, this would have been, in my opinion, a much better more enjoyable film because there were scenes where i was just like this is going on too long we fucking get it like like when judge humps a mummy what the fuck was that <laughs> cut that scene out that was so stupid uh and now especially in 2020 i mean it was problematic back then but we were all dumb it's super problematic now because he's like oh i love it when they stay still like this it's like what the fuck are you <laughs> saying judge i wonder if the rules are the same for dead people <laughs> okay john since you went you went straight there i need to say that that was the most disturbing scene in the whole film for me especially when i originally thought it was christopher lloyd doing all of that dry humping on a 3000 year old mummified corpse of a prince from egypt wait a minute what is happening right now the judge shows up to save michael j fox in this moment and then all of a sudden he's a super horny dude who's gonna go dry hump a, a mummy like <laughs> what is happening right now in this scene yeah that whole i would have cut out that whole museum scene because i have so many problems with it like in light of current events this feels ridiculous to say but the cops in that museum scene start blasting away like instantly they shoot like 45 bullets at an uh, Michael J. Fox, which at this point he is only, he's not even a prime suspect. They just want to take him down for questioning and just start shooting him in this museum filled with other people. They're just wildly, it's like the Wild West. They're just shooting like mad. Yeah, that's, yeah, okay. And I'd argue that they know this guy. This is a small town. This isn't New York fucking city. There's probably only a hundred people that live in this small port town of I assume off the east coast of the country or somewhere like they know him by name he's friends with the police chief and they never ever ever in the whole movie bring up the fact that two of the the only two deputies in the whole town probably shot that town's like bullet budget at Michael J. Fox in 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that town, it was a very interesting town. There was, there was some very interesting characters in there, like the uh, the heavy metal guy that Michael J. Fox runs into. Oh, yeah, that's Peter Jackson. That was his cameo. Yeah, there was a bunch of crazy shit in this movie, but man, the craziest shit, Jake Busey. Now, I'm sorry, you add a Busey to anything, you just instantly added crazy to it, and I love it. 
I'm totally down for that. Yeah. More movies need Buseys. Supposedly, he's a nightmare to work with. Not Jake, but like Gary. So like, I can understand why people would not want to, but you know, <laughs> hey, who knows? <laughs> well, let's do the setup of the film, right? So this town was a site for a mass murder done by Jake Busey's character named Johnny Bartlett. He had enticed a younger girl played by Dee Wallace in the film to commit these murders. And at the end of it, Jake Busey gets caught and he's electrocuted to death. And it was the worst thing that ever happened in this town. Now, fast forward to 1996, murders are starting to happen again. I don't know. Did they set up a like a, you know, serial killers will have a mark. Did he set up any type of calling card or anything like that? Only in the ghost form where they were carving numbers in their forehead. But in the beginning of the movie, the town didn't think it was Johnny Bartlett. They were going on and on about how it was a hell a virus or a health pandemic and people were inexplicably having heart attacks which also felt very relevant in 2020. And that's what they were blaming it on. And then they were like, oh, it's uh, Michael J. Fox's character. He's somehow causing all these people to have heart attacks. And finally, Michael J. Fox figures out what it really is. Well, that's that's after the fact. Mark, you were talking about like back in the day, right? Oh, like before he was caught? Yeah, so that's the thing is um, Johnny Bartlett basically goes into a hospital and goes on a killing spree. And he references Charles Starkweather, the real life like serial killer, because Starkweather killed 11 people. And he's all like, that's one more than Starkweather, because he was really proud that he killed 12 people. And so that's the thing is they car he carved the numbers on the head because he was trying to like outdo Starkweather. And uh, which is weird. They actually killed Starkweather the same way, electric chair. But um, yeah, so when the numbers started appearing, no one got that right away. He was trying to get his kill count higher than Starkweather, and he just kept going, so he put the numbers on them. But in the flashback, they showed them etching the numbers on everyone's head, including Frank's wife, who they thought he killed, but in actuality was killed by the ghost of Bartlett and his girlfriend. So it was just like, shit. So the uh, that's the backdrop of the movie, right? So that's the, the overarching story that's going to tie this whole plot together at the end. Um, but like the back of the box said, we've got Michael J. Fox scamming his way through town, telling people that he's going to come rid your house of ghosts, uh, but he's actually employing, I guess employing, or he's just buddies with these two other random spirits that he's befriended. They'll go to the houses and they'll start shaking the beds or levitating stuff, and then they'll drop Michael J. Fox's card somewhere in the house, and then they'll call, he'll come over, and he'll take care of your paranormal problem. What do you guys think of the uh, the, the sidekick ghosts? thought they were funny if I view it as okay the target audience for this movie is 10 to 15 uh as a rated r movie i agree with garrett i was like uh too comical like by half tone it down make them a little scarier it'd have been cooler if they look if they all looked more like judge and had more of a zombie decrepit appearance to them than uh just blue people that's what I didn't understand. He had this weird like relationship with each one of the ghosts. Like with the judge, he was all like, hey, we're old buddies. I'm getting too old for this shit. Blah, 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 blah. You know, and then the other two, like one, I don't know if he felt like he had to. He was going to get beat up. And the other one was all like, why the fuck are we doing this for you? You know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yo, like, what are the rules here? <laughs> like, are you guys hanging out because you have nothing better to do? Does he employ you? He keeps talking about, like the ghosts keep talking about how like, Frank said he's going to do stuff for him, like get him cigars. And he's like, you can't smoke. And he's like, you can smoke it and blow it in my face. And I'm like, 
how the fuck does that work? But anyway, regardless. Yeah, there were weird questions. Or the the same ghost who wanted the cigars was like, oh, can't you get us new clothes? And it's like, what are you talking about? How would that even work? Uh, so the, to your point, Mark, the rules are weird. And what the ghosts are getting out of this quote-unquote employment is never defined as to why these ghosts are hanging out. And it seems to be a privilege because at one point, Michael J. Fox is, is like, oh, I'll take you back to the graveyard and like at like a threat. So they want to work with him, but they never explain why or what they're getting out of this. And that's another thing that brings up an interesting question, because when someone dies in this movie, a giant like beam of light from heaven um, comes down and the 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 ghost, the spirit has the opportunity to follow the light and go up to heaven or not do that. And then Michael J. Fox or Frank says, um, oh, in a year, you'll be presented the option to go back up again because he tells that to Ray once Ray dies. So wait a minute, like if you miss the window, you have to wait a year. And if that's the case, why didn't these ghosts, are they not getting another opportunity? Why has the judge been here forever? He's like, I'm so tired. I want to be done with this. But it's like, if that's the rationale and that's the rule, every year he should have had the option to, to go to heaven or whatever. So why are all these ghosts still hanging there? Because when everyone else dies in the movie, they just go straight up the fucking white tube. Yeah, the judge character is very problematic because he also, he doesn't say, oh, I am tired. I want, you know, when the light comes, I'm going to go up. What he says is, I have a nice, quiet grave waiting for me in the graveyard, as if that's where he's going to go be forever. But to your point, Garrett, he'd only be there until the next opportunity, a light, you know, for the light to come, which at most would have been 364 days. So ah, this movie... This movie uh, did not plot its, you know, its rules well. So many questions. <laughs> and that's ultimately, the more I thought about this movie, the more it just kind of fell apart for me. We've got a 70s soul man ghost named Cyrus hanging out with Michael J. Fox. He's yet to change his clothes in the 20-something years since he died. But, you know, Arlie Emery's over here changing his outfits. He's still playing that caricature. And then the other sidekick is this dorky guy named Stuart. And I don't know anything about either of these characters, really. For a movie that's an hour and 50 minutes, I was hoping to get a little more backstory or at least um, character relationship building between these three who are kind of central to the story. Same. And uh, Stuart died, and I'm like, okay, I felt nothing, you know, when he gets taken out by the, the Grim Reaper ghost. Yeah, I don't, like, and they, this movie is not afraid to go back in time and show flashbacks but yet they opted to not show anything about like these characters and and to give any depth to the relationship and yeah they're so comical it's hard to take their death seriously you're just like oh all right whatever yeah because there's that scene where like frank is talking to the judge and um the judge is like i'm tired and he's like well you're the linchpin of my my operation you have to go in there shooting and that's what gets them all freaked out like frank needs the judge but the judge doesn't seem like he's obligated to be there. Um, why are they even giving him the time of day? Right. You know, like, like, did he do something for them? But yeah, that's a great point. I didn't even think about that until now. With an hour and 50 minutes, we should have had some kind of tether other than like, oh, these are my buds. Like, that's about the extent you get to like connect these characters. And yeah, because I didn't feel shit when Stuart died. I was like, oh, that's that's something that happened, you know? And when the judge is like, doing his thing it was like 
Okay, dude, just go home. Like, like why? Right. I can't see what the judge is bringing to the table anyway, because he's all old and frail, even for a ghost. And their main, their only haunting system is just pick things up and float it around. The judge was not picking shit up. So I don't under, even understand what he was bringing to the party. Looks like uh, I ain't shooting with blanks no more. <laughs> oh, God, I forgot about this fucking part. Like the movie starts with like an old woman and a 40 year old woman running through a house being haunted by like the the Terminator 2 ghosts. And um, then it chokes her and cuts her hand. And then uh, that old woman looks exactly in my mind, looks exactly like uh, the mom character from Futurama. <laughs> that's that's a good point. I love when she yells to the ghost, you can't have her. She's a young woman. And like we all like watching this movie, look at each other like she's like 46. <laughs> I guess it's all relative, though, because that lady was like, you know, 80. So, <laughs> yeah. Later on, you find out that the the quote unquote young woman being chased around the house by the ghost is um the girlfriend who was hooked up with Bartlett doing the the murder sprees. And that's her mom trying to protect her and keep her in the house. But yeah, so cut back to the main storyline. Um, Ray's wife is the doctor who went and saw that woman. At the very beginning of the movie, uh, someone dies. There's a funeral going on. Um, and then Frank shows up and he's passing out cards kind of like, hey, if you need help, he's a paranormal, whatever he is. And they're like, get the fuck out of here. He throws his cards up in the air so people can pick them up and uh, use them. Then as he's driving home, he is driving like a maniac, which basically sets the tone that he's a terrible driver. Um, or is it he a terrible driver because of what happened with his wife? I don't know the difference there because they never explain which one. Um, he barrels onto a, a yard, like through a fence, a white picket fence, into a yard, messes up the yard. And that's when Ray, uh, Bobo Biff Tannen, comes out and he's like, my yard, what have you done? You know, like, like okay, fine, you're going to pay for this. And then Michael J. Fox is like, cool, you know, call me, we'll do this. We don't need to get lawyers involved. And then that night, Ray and his wife, who's a doctor who went earlier to see the young woman earlier that day, so their house is being haunted now. There's all this shit going on. The bed's lifting up. And I do love the fact that the ghosts are like, man, we tweaked our backs lifting that bed. It was heavy. And I'm like, really? So you can be hurt by doing manual labor as a ghost. That kind of sucks. But that, but that doesn't make sense because you can be a magician. You're, everything's at your fingertips like machine guns. Like, why would you hurt yourself moving a bed? Yeah. Well, they also complain about riding in the trunk. Why would they? They're like, oh, there's not enough space in the car. What the fuck are they talking about? They're ghosts. <laughs> well, no, he he won't let them ride in the car because he doesn't want them to get ectoplasm on everything. So he makes them ride in the trunk. Oh, yeah. And evidently they get sick from riding in the trunk. That's the thing is he gets squished by a car. They get like whipped around like fucking balloon animals like that have just been popped and they're completely fine. But riding in a trunk makes them sick, which is... Oh, God, it's so weird. But anyway, so Lucy and Ray's house are being haunted. They end up calling Frank. Um, and he's like, wait a minute. I thought I tore that card up. How is that here? Um, Frank shows up and it's like, oh, yeah, it's your classic, you know, and he's he's grifting him. He's scamming him. And he's like, oh, I got rid of your ghost for you. Uh, I do love that he shoots holy water out of a gun. He just opens the microwave and squirts some holy water uh, into there. It's like, all right, dude, that that's funny. Yeah, he pulls out this gun. And they like they like gasp, and he's like, "It's just holy water. Don't worry about it. It's a water gun." Um, I've never had an automated water gun. I always had to like do one that you had to pull the trigger and pump it yourself. Those are for those are reserved for kids with money, Garrett. <laughs> 
that was not us. Yeah, me either. That was obviously an expensive water gun too, because it looked exactly like a gun. Like it didn't even have the like the red tip, nothing. Uh, which, by the way, very dangerous, Michael J. Fox. Don't be or Frank. Don't be doing shit like that. So anyway, he rids the house of ghosts, and he's like, "Oh well, we can just like forget that I ruined your yard, and you don't have to pay for that, and then we'll call this all even." And Ray's like, "What a scam!" So as he's about to leave, he sees a number carved onto Ray's forehead and it's like 36 or something like that. And he's like, what's with the number? And then everyone's like, what are you talking about? We don't see it. And so he's like, okay, he leaves. Frank leaves. And then as he's, you find out that he's working with the ghost, as you guys talked about. So it's like a scam that they're running to kind of basically build people out of money or get him out of financial O. He's like, hey, that wasn't funny with the number. Now, I didn't get the impact of that because we didn't know that his wife also had a number carved on her head when she died. But did he even know that? I think at the end of the film, it is revealed that, yes, when he's having that flashback of his wife dying in the crash and then you find out who killed his wife and it wasn't because of the accident, they show that getting carved in. So maybe it was like a suppressed memory. Okay. And it wasn't until the end scene that it comes flooding back that like, oh, that's what happened. Because they also mention a, a line earlier in the movie where they're like, oh, Michael J. Fox doesn't remember anything after the crash. Yeah. Saying that he had some sort of weird amnesia. Okay. So that's that explains that thing. Because I was like, I was like, I would never forget that someone I loved had a number carved into their head that I didn't do. You know, like, I'm like, that's something that sticks with you. But I guess... That's fair. He blocked it all out. Um, he must have like subconsciously remembered it or something, though, because he did yell at them. He was like, that's not funny. Uh, or He did not like that they had put that number on the guy. Like when he thought that his ghost partners did it and he uh, he did not enjoy that. So he must have like kind of remembered it or had some subconscious dislike. Yeah. And that's what I thought. I thought he was like, he's like, that's fucked up because you know what happened to my wife is the way I like, I took that, you know, when I found out later, I was like, oh, he was pissed because he, but then like, they were like, he doesn't remember anything. And I'm like, then why would he be pissed about this number? This leads me into another issue that I have with this movie. And it's the emotional arc that Michael J. Fox's character takes within this movie. He's kind of this staunch con man at the beginning. And then once he starts being blamed for all the murders, like, you know, that the back of the box mentions, he just completely folds in on himself and starts having this like emotional breakdown until he's rescued by the new love interest Lucy and then all of a sudden he's back to normal and I was like that doesn't feel right for some reason like I just I didn't sit well with me and like we just need to sideline Michael J's character for a while while we do do some other stuff yeah there's really this goes back to like this movie doesn't know what it wants to be because I don't feel like any of the adults in this film act like how regular people would act that it feels like how children think adults behave um because like ray lansky is also a comic doofus like hothead uh his wife gets over his death in like two days his sudden rap even if they were having like a a rough marriage which they allude to i feel like she does not mourn him at all like the same night she's just like oh yeah uh what's up frank like let's get close that was weird and it did not seem realistic at all um then we haven't even gotten to the to jeffrey combs's character oh god i forgot about jeffrey combs's character but yeah she's on a date well i wouldn't call it a date i think ray takes her out to dinner to like kind of be like hey are you okay type thing and talk about what's going on but yeah like in that dinner she's like ah we were not really 
super cool with each other. It was kind of a sham. And Ray, the ghost Ray, is like sitting there going like, what are you talking about? Like, he didn't know any of this. But yeah, no, you're right. Like, within like three days, she's like, cool. Let's see what else is going on in this town. (laughs) It's like, damn. Yeah. Um, Since you mentioned his character, let's move into the Jeffrey Combs section of this film. So these murders are happening throughout the town. And then for whatever reason, the FBI has sent out paranormal specialist Jeffrey Combs. His character's name is Milton Dammers. So Agent Dammers has shown up and he's immediately suspecting Frank, uh, Michael J. Fox's characters for all the murders. And where did he come to that conclusion? I, is it that something he's been investigating since the Bartlett murders or what? Like he just seems so zeroed in already on Frank when he's introduced. He's introduced as this messed up dude. Like he won't enter a room. He like ask a question to the wall and then he like turns and is like you answer like he's like a fucking psycho and he is a paranormal like FBI guy like like Agent Mulder if you will if Agent Mulder was like completely fucking messed up and detached but the thing is though is like I thought he suspected there was more going on than just Frank killing people I thought like oh he's gonna be our conduit and to be like oh no there's something paranormal happening here but no they just sent him here because I guess. Yeah, exactly. It's like, why is he here? Yeah. And he does seem to know all the details, though, about Frank's case and, you know, the story with his wife. So he must have already been researching him. My theory, and maybe I I think they allude to this in the movie, is I think Milton Dammers thinks that Frank killed his wife. That's what I think. And that he got away with it. And now he's like, oh, convenient amnesia. But uh, but really, he killed his wife and escaped. That's what I think Milton Dammers is like his motivation. But there's no supernatural there, at that point in the in the in the death of his wife. There's no supernatural connection to that. Why would he be assigned to that particular case? That is my point. Like there there's zero reason to make him a weird paranormal guy at that point. He could just been like, I've been doing like cold case murders for like, you know, like not cold case murders, but I've been doing like these type of like investigations for like 50 years. I suspect foul play. Everyone else has written it off, but I know better. Like they could have had him just be like super experienced, but no, they made this like big production about his paranormal shit, which comes into play. Never. Even when he like is presented with like somewhat evidence, it's still fucking like never used. Like why even it had to be a character choice, but man, it was so pointless. Well, you're right because he sidesteps all of the evidence to believe that Michael J. Fox is doing all of this. You think his background in paranormal would be like, yeah, this is some serious ghost shit happening right now, but he's completely oblivious to all of it until he has his head shotgunned off at the end of the movie. And that's the end of his his storyline. He's just stuck in a sheriff's car, I guess. And we don't get any uh, comeuppance with his character. No conversation with Michael J. Fox when this is all over. And it's like, why would this character could be utterly removed from the movie and it wouldn't have any real impact. That being said, Jeffrey Combs' performance is probably my favorite in the entire movie. Him and Dee Wallace, I think, are the standout actors in this film, even though I don't really like Combs' character. I think he did a fantastic job. I agree with that. Yeah, I agree. And I think the scene where Jeffrey Combs is interrogating Michael J. Fox is one of the best scenes in the movie. Just from a pure acting like standpoint, I think everyone did a really great job. 
even if it did end up taking a ludicrous turn, I thought the whole scene was well shot. There was like all these close ups. It was uh, structurally and uh, technically done really well. Yeah, no argument there. Yeah, that that character comes and goes, and he pushes the plot along. It's a, a plot along against Michael J. Fox at different times of the film. But ultimately, I feel like you could remove him from the movie, trim down the plot, made it just be a story about the local police chasing him, and it would have been a tighter movie for it. And that would have been a better um, playoff because you have the, the local police who know him and are like, man, he's been through so much. Oh, my God. But what if he actually did do, you know, like what if the evidence keeps showing that maybe like they're like, oh, my God, maybe we were wrong. This is going to be a difficult choice because man, you know, like, but no, that's not what we get. We get this outside benevolent force that is there just to, as a plot device, man, it's, I don't know. This movie's just irresponsible. Um, <laughs> so, so the movie, the movie keeps going and we start seeing more and more people get killed. Uh, the ghosts and Frank are now seeing this like grim reaper type thing show up um, and take the souls out of people who are having who before they die michael j fox i keep calling michael j fox frank is seeing the numbers carved on their head but they're like crazy glowy like light you know numbers on it but it's like clearly the numbers and as the plot goes you realize that the the grim reaper character is actually gary Busey's ghost going around increasing his kill count because he's going to have the highest like serial killer kill count ever and it all builds up there's a bunch of bullshit that happens in there but <laughs> it all builds up to this thing where lucy is now i guess involved with frank they're starting to be a couple to some weird degree um the ghosts are tagging along and trying to help uncover who the grim reaper is uh they get some of them get killed in the process you know like it's a whole thing and then you finally like it's revealed that it's actually um Jake Busey, Bartlett, Bartlett. Yeah. Bartlett basically like getting his kills from beyond the grave. But in that process, you also find out that his girlfriend was the, the young woman from the, (laughs) the old house early on. And she's still helping him kill. Like she's still like in love with him and like, yeah, we're going to, we'll do it from behind the grave. You know, like she's fucked up. And that's the plot line I think was definitely like at the time was like, this is way messed up. This is going to be an R. D. Wallace's character, Patricia Bradley, she's the girl that was his sidekick, Johnny Bartlett, back when the murders were happening before his execution. And throughout the movie, D. Wallace plays this character very timidly, very, um, I guess she never matured past the event, right? She still seems very childlike. And to John's point, she's like a 45-year-old woman living with her 80-year-old mother, and she's still acting like she's 14. Um, it's whenever it's revealed later on as the plot goes on that she's part of the um, the, the combo team, you know, the Bonnie and Clyde style of murder team. All of a sudden, she flips the switch, and she's gone crazy. And I think D. Wallace does an amazing job in both versions of this character. Yeah, it's written that uh, Peter Jackson wanted D. Wallace for that role because he's like, no one would ever suspect uh, the mom from E.T. to be evil. Like, he's <laughs> like, there's no more wholesome person out there. No one will see this coming. Um, and I mean, honestly, fucking he's right. Like, she just seemed so helpless and kind of like and the thing is as you learn the backstory about how she was bartlett's girlfriend and everyone's like oh you know she just got mixed up with the wrong guy at 15 you know like 
It's not her fault. And you come to feel sorry for her. They actually did a really good job of developing that plot line. Because you do feel sorry for her, like, oh my god, she's being harassed by this ghost. And then when you find out it's Bartlett, you're like, oh man, he's fucking with his old girlfriend and stuff too. And that's when you find out that she's in on the whole thing, as she always has been, because she was in on it back when he was alive. They just didn't think that she could be capable of it. Right. And when Michael J. Fox's, uh, Frank Bartlett's memories start flooding back, they show her carving the number on his dead wife's head. So that repressed memory reveals, oh, yes, she's been fucking with you, Frank. She's the reason that you've been miserable this whole time. Yeah, and that was a weird flashback, too, because it's um, Milton, Milton Dahmer's, that's like telling Lucy the backstory of Frank's dead wife. He's like, they were at home. He spent this money that was supposed to go on a garden on a basketball court, which I get. Um, and then, like, they were driving away, and they had an argument, and he was, he says that he didn't realize that he was driving so fast, and he drove off the edge of a cliff, and then quote unquote, she died, according to what people think. But Dahmers doesn't think that's the case. He thinks he killed her. And does Dahmers know that he that the number was carved in the, the head? Well, they never mention that, right? Because that's another plot convenience thing that we don't want the audience to know about just yet. Um, but he's super zeroed in on the missing utility knife from Frank's back um, trunk, where he apparently puts his initials on everything because he wrote FB on his utility knife. I don't know why you would need to do that, um, but it's for us to realize once they show that utility knife again, it's hidden inside Patricia's house. And the movie wants us to think that the mother, who's been this kind of portrayed as the villain of this house where all this deep, dark aura is coming from, she's the reason for it. But in the end, we realize it was Patricia all along. Yeah. After that event, after that traumatic event that he can't remember the details of, which I'll buy that. I'll buy that something traumatic happens. You you can't remember all the details of it. He's been able to see ghosts since then. So hence, Michael J. Fox, Frank's life at that point, you know, and I buy that. I'm cool with that plot line. I'm fine with that story. Um, it's just weird that like numbers carved in a head on a body was not front page fucking news. And after Bartlett was going around like, I got 12, that's one more than Starkweather, you know, like, and like, I'm going to have more, you know, like, like, he's like, like, how do they not piece together? Like, oh, 13. Okay. You know, one plus two guys. Yeah. That's, a, that's, that's one of my issues here, right? The, the movie's being selective with its facts and it's revealing when it becomes convenient for the audience to know it because of their storytelling. Right. And, and that's, uh, it's like, like, you're right. That should have been like, told to the audience up front, oh, the, the, all of the deaths had numbers carved in their heads or something like that, but they don't want you to know that yet. Like, that would have been a great thing for them to, like, you know, like, oh, well, you know, Frank lost it on his wife and then, like, carved the number in his, like, his wife's head because he wanted to look like the previous murder. So, you know, like, I mean, cast doubt on, you know, like, I don't know. There's a million things that could have been done there that could have been, like, they could have played it out a little bit better. But, again, I know we're shitting a lot on this movie. Overall, this is a pretty enjoyable film. God, it is. I did not know it was an hour and fifty. I like last night. I was like, "This is a bit long," but I did not know it was one fifty. Yeah, like 
now that we're talking about it, like all these plot holes come up and whatever, but when you just sit down and watch it, I honestly, I mean, there were some, but most of the stuff you don't really think about. It's enjoyable enough that you don't start tearing it apart till you're done watching it and then on a podcast. And then the movie does not hold up at all. <laughs> and honestly, that's some of my favorite movies. I, I love some movies that have some real problems with the storytelling, but I, I love making fun of them. I love like going like, well, that makes no sense. But again, this is a, this is a very enjoyable movie and for it being 96 it does have like i said it does have a very 96 feel a very 90s feel to it but overall there's nothing in this movie that feels so dated it takes you out of it it never like makes you i could see this movie coming out today on netflix or something like that yeah totally i uh, again i'm just gonna fall back on like i didn't really like the tone i felt it was just a little too cartoonish in what it was portraying while trying to be a rated R movie at the same time. Garrett, you, you've often said that you don't like love uh, interests injected into these movies. Well, this one kind of does it. Like, it doesn't go full on, like, now they're together and they're kissing throughout the movie. But one of the parts that I really didn't understand is when Michael J. Fox is so trying to save Lucy while the Johnny Bartlett Grim Reaper is trying to get her because all of a sudden the number appears on her head later on in the movie. He's willing to kill himself. He's going to shoot himself in the head to go save her. What the fuck are you... you, You're willing to kill yourself to save this girl you've known for two days. Yeah, it's bonkers. Yeah, I uh, honestly, this this movie definitely does have... uh, Okay, I don't know. When people fall in love, like willing to kill themselves after knowing someone for like an hour... I'm always like, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not buying it. Even love at first sight takes more than like, you know, yeah, the time it takes to order a Big Mac. I mean, <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's this movie felt so weird in the fact that he was all like, hey, and plus her husband had just died. Right. It's crazy. It's a child's point of view on love. But Hear me out. What if the story had been written whereas Michael J. Fox saw this Grim Reaper character kill his wife and he couldn't do anything about it so he was helpless and now that he sees this Grim Reaper character come back into his life killing people that he knows and maybe is starting to catch feelings for he's like not again I have to stop this or this person or this entity is going to haunt me for my whole life and that's his motivation. I think that would have been a stronger movie. I, I agree. And I think there was I think there was something like the seeds were laid for that. Because remember when he, he runs into um Peter Jackson's character and he looks up at his shirt and there's the Grim Reaper like art pointing at him. Mm-hmm. And then later on he talks to because when they first see it, he talks to Judge and he's like, Oh, this is that's death, you know, incarnate. Like he's got this little backstory for like the Grim Reaper. And I'm like, oh, okay. So Maybe it's just this sense of honor, like, you know, like, oh, I do the same for anyone in the town, but we never get that feeling from his character at all up until he decides that he has to, like Mark said, like, literally kill himself to save, you know, Lucy. And I think he's seen, like, people die with the numbers, and he sees that, and he's like, oh, my God, I can put a stop to this. I I think it's more out of a a moment of chivalry. Yeah, I see where you're going with that. I just think the sense of... I'm the Boy Scout going to go save the town is particularly earned with this con man, Michael J. Fox. doesn't quite add up for me. Yeah, we never even have like a save the cat moment at the beginning or anything to like endear us to him. Yeah, his motivation for everything he does is so unclear. 
in the beginning, it's about money, and then out of nowhere, it changes to some vague nothingness. It's like, why? Like, the character they set up in the beginning would really just pack up and leave. He can go be a con man somewhere else. It doesn't seem like that character is going to suddenly become Captain America and jump into heroics. You know what I think it is, guys, is I think that the filmmakers are showing us Michael J. Fox. They're showing us this wholesome actor who we grew up with. We're just supposed to believe that he's still this wholesome guy deep down based on all the performances we've seen him in so far. Family Ties, Back to the Future. You know this kid. He's a good kid. Of course he would stand up and be the Boy Scout at the end of the movie. Which makes sense in theory, except for the fact that everything they've shown me in this movie has basically shown that he's kind of self-centered, only concerned with himself, um, not really thinking of others. I mean, he's handing out his business card at a funeral. Like he's, again, everything we've seen from this character shows an aloof person who really doesn't think outside of himself. I mean, even with the ghost interactions, they're like, hey, you promised to do this for us. And he's like, "Ah, eh, you can't enjoy it anyway. It's like, that's not the point, dude. If you promise that, fucking follow through. The judge is like, I'm tired. I want to go back to my grave, my nice, quiet grave. And he's all like, you're the linchpin to my like scam. And at no point do we get the fact that he's he's altruist in in nature. And damn it, if like out of nowhere, it's all like, well, I have to do this now. And it's only from that like dinner and interacting with her loosely that we get an idea that, oh, maybe he kind of thinks she's cool or likes her or something like that. But again, we've had the span of a day, a day and a half, maybe. Like, I don't know about you, but if I'm an, if I'm a nice guy who's supposed to basically like be, you know, I'll sacrifice myself for someone else. I'm not hitting on someone's widow within fucking 48 hours. End of story. Exactly. I mean, I really think they should have just cut whatever three or four frames of this movie they needed to cut to make it PG-13 and targeted this as a child, like a children's movie, like a, okay, you saw Casper in 1995. Now here's a little bit harder version of that and a step up from the Casper uh, film or something. Fuck you, John. That's not even... (laughs) That's you could have gone with anything else, but you went with Casper, arguably the like the most like eight year old movie in existence. Sure. And I think this movie would have been the graduation point for that class of of children. Right. Okay, you saw that. Now it's two or three years later and you're looking for something else. You're like allowed to pick your own movies. I don't see why you wouldn't pick something like this. There's no the violence is so like minuscule, except for like a few scenes that this is a children's movie. It's written like it. The characters are all one-dimensional, right? And that's where we're running into this problem with Michael J. Fox is that they gave him all these these character traits, but ultimately it doesn't matter because in children's movies, good guys are good, bad guys are bad, there's no in-between, and the good guy is always going to do the good thing. And in this case, the good thing is, you know, saving Lucy and fighting for the town. So no matter what character traits they gave Michael J. Fox, this is the only thing he could have done because he's the good guy that's what good guys do i think i think you're right that's dead on but i just found this out as you were you were going off on your rant there (laughs) this was supposed to be a pg-13 movie um according to imdb it says when peter jackson learned during post-production that the mpaa was going to give the movie an r rating despite many efforts to go for a pg-13 rating he made milton Dahmer's death scene more gruesome by blowing up his head instead of just having him shot in the chest and blown through the chapel doors well let's uh, let's talk about that scene for a second because i had a problem with that too 
this this violent act of blowing a man's head off with a shotgun is completely undercut by the fact that the ghost's soul is still there in place. So it's literally like a millisecond that he doesn't have a head on his body before the ghost version of him is is sitting right there. And that's what I'm talking about. Like some of this stuff is just way too cartoonish. So when that happened, like I felt nothing. I I wasn't like disgusted by it. I was like, yeah, of course that's what's going to happen in this movie. I can't believe this is the version of the film they added gore to. What was the MPA on in 1996 that they gave a less gory version of this movie in R rating? I guarantee you. Hey, Mark, look up real quick when uh, Natural Born Killers came out for me, if you would. I think it was like 95. But I guarantee you what got this movie its, um, its rating is the insanely creepy, hardcore serial killer um, couple and carving the numbers on their head. I I would put money down that that was probably the reason why. Because you're right, the violence in this, even at the time, was no more no worse than we had seen in like other PG thirteen movies. You know, arguably, Monster Squad had more violent imagery than this movie did. But I think it was the the sheer psychotic natural born killer esque like couple that was like. Harvey numbers serial killer style into people's head that like, they were just like no fuck that that's too scary that's too fucked up I would I would bet that's me assuming yeah that movie came out in 1994 so you're pretty close I bet they were still shook by um, natural born killers and I bet they were making comparisons to um, uh, whatever those characters names were god I haven't seen that movie in ages it does not hold up no I saw it a little bit ago it's like watching a two hour music video Oh, well, I mean, you know, I want them to make hacks in with music video people. So, but yeah, no. um, Yeah, I I think that's what it was. I think we were, I think the MPAA was shook by Natural Born Killers and Tarantino coming on the scene. And I think that they were just like subject matter is just important as the visuals. Again, assumptions on my part, but if I had to put money down, that was where my bet would go. That's fair. You're probably right. Well, let's wrap in the end of this movie, the, the the final act of this. So the point where Michael J. Fox is trying to shoot himself in the head, it's so he can go to the corporeal ghost realm and battle it out with the Grim Reaper character. At this point, he doesn't know it's Johnny Bartlett. He still just thinks it's some imposing Grim Reaper character. But Lucy has a better idea. Apparently, she has some sort of drug that can slow his heart rate. She's going to dump him inside a cooler you know, one of those uh, restaurant cooler type rooms, and he's going to slow his heartbeat down long enough for his soul to separate itself from his body, and then he can go do what he needs to do without without actually dying. And this feels like a very 90s plot point. <laughs> well, we had, uh, when, did, when did Scanners, not Scanners, when did Flatliners come out? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So help me out, fellas, here. Once he goes into the ghost realm, what is going on with Johnny Bartlett's ashes? Is this still pre all that stuff? This is before all that. Yeah. He takes the, this is where he takes the Grim Reaper, right? To the cemetery and they battle it out there. And Arlie Emery shoots the, Oh, and, uh, and there's a whole scene and it's, it's, it's a pretty great scene. But while that's happening, uh, Dameron, of course, somehow knew exactly where uh, Frank and Lucy were, and he comes in and arrests Lucy, um, which leads to a, a really stupid scene where he brings out a little hemorrhoid pillow before he sits down in his car. <laughs> so dumb. 
Because he's like, why would we want to bring uh, Frank back to life? Because he really has it out for Frank. He wants him to die, apparently. Yeah, the, it's, it's it, again, it's still very strange how da- Dammer's character has just got it out for Frank. Like, he's wronged him personally. Well, because he's about to, like, isn't he about to, like, take him out or uncover something? And then, like, they wake him up. Like, he comes back to in the bathtub. Or the, the cooler. Yeah. And then that's when he knows. That's when he knows that it's Bartlett. And so they they realize Patricia's being attacked. They think, like, the mother's like, get out of here, you know? Like, there's a big old fiasco. They find out that Johnny Bartlett's um, ashes are there. He grabs the ashes. That's when they run to the hospital that happens to be nearby and completely condemned. And this is where the Bartlett massacre happened. That's when they're like, oh, we can go to the chapel and we can use the holy ground there to basically expel his spirit, which has one of the white portals just there. So do all chapels and churches just have a white portal at all times? I guess. Yeah. That's what I'm assuming. Yeah. It's what it seemed like. This town also suffers from movie small town syndrome where it's like, okay, it's a small town, but it apparently has a newspaper, a museum, an abandoned hospital, mansions, like they're very inconsistent with the size of this town. Well, it's big enough. I mean, it's I feel like it's a story from like Goonies. It's it's a it's small town vibe, but it's big enough to have a newspaper or things like that, you know. But and three cops. <laughs> hey, look. All right. They they're very efficient at what they do. <laughs> they are trying to get to the chapel. They're being chased by Dahmers. They're also being chased by Dammers, not Dahmers, Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, they're also being chased by um, Patricia, who is trying to kill them because the jig is up at this point. They now know that she's working with Bartlett to kill people, and she's completely fucked up still. Yeah, Dammers actually dumps out the ashes of Bartlett. So while Frank is trying to run into the chapel and consecrate the ashes or whatever the hell the process is called, uh, Dammer shows up and hits Michael J. Fox and takes the ashes and dumps them out on the ground. And then that's when Patricia rounds the corner and blows off Dammer's head. And then all this, all the while, I think Lucy's like stuck in the elevator for whatever reason. Because I would take an elevator in a condemned hospital. Jesus Christ, just <laughs> common sense, people. <laughs> I don't, and I don't understand what Dammers is going on about. He's like, these ashes must never be released. Pours them right out. It's like, what are you? See, I thought his. I thought his storyline was that he knew that this this stuff existed, the the paranormal like serial killer shit existed, and then he was going to like he's like people have to find out it has to be real so that way they know I'm not crazy. Like I thought his whole thing was to try to justify what he knew, but no. I kept thinking he was going to turn out to be a bad guy. Like when I when you first watch this movie, you could I like, "Oh, you're working with Bartlett." Like that would have made a lot of sense to me. Because that's how he acts. Ooh, that would have been really interesting if you found out that, like, he was, like, he was an FBI guy who became obsessed with Bartlett so much that he wanted to carry on his work or something. Like, oh, he wanted to carry on his work, but then someone else was doing it, and he felt, like, jealous, and he had to know, like, oh, man, there's so many things that could have been done with that that could have made his character way fucking more interesting. (laughs) Or just make him the cynical non-believer in the paranormal. Like, that is what his character is doing this whole movie. He doesn't believe any of it's real. So why put him in the paranormal department where he's been... They even say, they show off... Okay, Jeffrey Combs opens his shirt to show off all these ritualistic scars he has on his body. Like, he's been through shit. 
So he would have seen something by now that should have made him believe, right? But that's not the direction they took the character. And it's just confusing. Well, evidently, there's 14 minutes of movie that was edited out. And one of the scenes that's on the um, the deleted scenes on the Laserdisc where uh, Dammers talks about some of his most horrific experiences being undercover in the paranormal like cult. You want to know how I got these scars? Like he evidently like has like an extended scene where he talks about some of the more horrific shit that he's seen under his his thing. So again, I don't want the movie to be longer, but that would have been more interesting than just some of the shit that we did see. But man, yeah. So it all wraps up. Uh, Jay Fox ends up dying. Patricia kills him, right? So they're they're the final act of the or the final scene in this is Johnny Bartlett's ghost is going around and he's about to kill Lucy. And then he's like, Patricia, why don't you do the honors or whatever? And she ends up killing Jay Fox. Well, Jay Fox's ghost somehow wraps his spirit around Patricia's spirit and rips it from her body. They all go into the giant light at the end of the tunnel. And he's luring Bartlett into this tunnel by kidnapping the spirit of his girlfriend. So he follows him into the tunnel. And the tunnel changes because, you know, if you're a bad person, you go to hell, right? You don't get to go to heaven. So it turns into a giant ghost worm and eats the evil people's spirits and goes to hell. And Jay Fox is standing on the other side with his ghost buddies who've all been there. And they're like, hey, it's not your time, man. You're going back to Earth. And that's basically how this movie ends. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. But how does he know how to rip someone else's spirit out of their body? I have to interrupt you there, Mark, because you skipped over two things that like drove me absolutely crazy at the end of this film. As the reason that light tunnel appears is because uh, Patricia does kill um, Frank, and Frank, who's now has the option to go up the white tunnel, instead of immediately going up the white tunnel, grabs Patricia, rips her ghost soul out of her body, starts taking it up, and then, you know, as you... But how does he have the ability to do that? That's, that's what I'm getting at here. How can he do that? He's, he's, he's level seven OTC. He's level seven OTC. Okay. I don't know. I have no, <laughs> Frank is OP. We all know that. All right. So, uh, talk to the developers, Mark. They made him OP. The man is Michael J. Fox. He knows what he's doing. But anyway, so the thing is, though, it's funny though, is when they blew Dammer's head off, no tube of light showed up for him, good or bad. Ooh. Um, they just completely forgot about that. Um, so then, so yeah, so basically he pulls uh, Patricia's soul up, uh, Jake Busey comes after her, he basically, you know, as you said, he gets to go into heaven, but right before they enter, they get sucked down to hell, and this was weird because, yes, you see Cyrus and Stuart in modern clothes, in color, they're in heaven, they're like, hey, look, we're modern now, like, like we got everything, and he's smoking a cigar, so, like, he got everything he wanted, but then as, like, he's like, all right, well, I guess here I am. And they're like, it's not your time yet. His dead wife. Yeah, what the fuck? His dead wife walks up to him and is like, Frank, it's not time for you yet. I want you to go back and be happy. More or less saying, go bone that Lucy that you've been fucking hitting on a day or two after her husband's dead. The wife is completely on board with like, move on, be happy, which I can understand why you would write that. But it was just the weirdest fucking moment because like out of nowhere, she's not nice to see you. Let me give you a hug. I miss you. Let me give you a kiss. It's like, hey, go down there and fuck that chick. Like... (laughs) 
Like, I'm just like, what a weird fucking moment. And you know, now, so Frank knows in this universe that he lives in 100%, there is a heaven and you get to meet your people that, you know, pass before you. What's going to happen when him and Lucy die? And now they're up there and his original wife is up there. And that's got to be a weird triangle situation uh, that he's going to have to sort out apparently for eternity. Three way. <laughs> Can you have a three way in heaven? I guess so because the other ghosts were like, and were alluding to the fact that there is a lot of banging going on in this universe's heaven. Yeah, because because uh, Cyrus says Stewart is cleaning up with the ladies up here, which I'm like, yo. That's fucking weird. Yeah. Um, well, this isn't the Christian heaven for sure. Christian heaven, you just praise Jesus all day long in church. <laughs> um, so I don't think there's any any uh, any banging in in the you know the standard version of heaven. I don't know. Look, we're we're asking questions that we can't answer here. And John, you're posing a very philosophical question of what happens when you remarry if Mary's holy in the eyes of God and whatnot. Do you get to live with both your wives? That seems a little wrong. Or your two husbands. You know, it could go either way, I guess. Well, that's polygamy, and that's not allowed, according to that book. So, Lots of good questions here, Frighteners. <laughs> what were you doing? How could you not solve these tricky <laughs> philosophical problems? <laughs> anyway, this movie shouldn't be posing questions it's not ready to answer. Yeah, but so that's that's the movie. And you guys say that you weren't nitpicking this movie as you were watching it. Well, these were all the things that were going through my head, and I had definitely got stumped by ghost guns. Um, so I... I honestly don't know if I would recommend this movie. I love how stuck on ghost guns you are. Like all the major plot holes that me and John have presented here, you're still just like, what's up with ghost guns? Am I right, guys? Well, I don't think I've ever seen a, a, a paranormal movie use Uzis and automatic weapons on the other side before. This may be a first, so I'll give it that. But it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you made it like five minutes into the movie and we're like, fuck it. If they can't explain ghost guns, I'm out. I will say one of my favorite parts of this movie, though, is watching how uh, the ghosts haunt, quote unquote, haunt houses. And you see them just picking up babies and moving shit around. And so now whenever I see ghost movies, I do think of this movie and I just picture a ghost physically actually doing these activities. And it's pretty hilarious. <laughs> Poltergeist is no longer scary when you think about it from that <laughs> direction. <laughs> yeah. And that scene you're talking about, John, where the babies are floating in the air. I got a real like... Honey, I shrunk the kids vibe out of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that felt like Ghostbusters 2 to me. I was just like, oh boy, here we mm -hmm. go. Yeah. Also in that scene, one of the ghosts makes a reference to the fact that one of the babies shit itself and stinks and he didn't want to hold it. So ghosts can smell? Uh, we didn't... I mean, that scene has a million problems. Like, <laughs> they, they, all this haunting shit happens. She sees the card then she's like oh, Frank, whatever, he's a con man. And then immediately the ghosts are like, no, don't, she knows you're a con. That's a good point. She, did, she didn't realize that the ghosts were in on it. She had no concept of that. So she's like, oh, he's a con man. These must be ghosts playing into his scam. Like how, yeah, there's no reason for her to fucking stop. Your babies were floating. Yeah, like if he's a con man, you still have to figure out why were your babies in the air, lady? That's crazy. <laughs> I love that. You still got to figure out why your babies were floating in the air. <laughs> oh, God. All right. I'm done. I can't. I can't anymore with this movie. This movie is so problematic. Um, 
I, I don't think it's funny enough to be a comedy, and I don't think it's scary enough to be a horror movie. It's just weird. It's a, a weird slapsticky ghost cartoon to me. Yeah, that being said, I, I honestly don't think I can recommend it based on everything you've said today. It's, it's too long and, and too weird. And that, that extended cut you're talking about, Garrett, that they cut 14 minutes out, I heard that it, they cut that stuff out because it even made it more slapsticky and cartoonish. Oh, wow. That was another reason that stuff got cut out. Well, would you guys recommend it on the revisit? Um, yes, but maybe not to uh, a discerning horror viewer. But if you have someone in your life who is like a kind of horror fan or scares easily or is, I think, in your early like preteens to early teens years... I think this is a good movie to watch with them. Uh, but obviously, if you're like really into horror movies or logic, um, this isn't the movie for you. <laughs> if you're into logic, don't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that if someone came up to me and was like, yo, I love Beetlejuice, I wouldn't recommend this movie. If someone said, I really love Ghostbusters 2, because you guys know how I feel about Ghostbusters 2, not the biggest fan. Um, which is weird because I really like the Girl Ghostbusters movie. Anyway, side note. Um, if people were just like, yo, I really like Ghostbusters 2, I would recommend this movie because it feels like that. It's like it's comedy, but also not funny enough to be a comedy, but it's also not scary enough to be a horror movie. Oh, man, it's it's a hard call. I would, I would recommend it in very specific situations. When this movie came out, it wasn't uh, it wasn't really a success. It was a box office disappointment, only bringing in twenty nine million dollars on a twenty six million dollar budget. Um, it came out against Independence Day, which was a sweep away success that year. I think everybody went to the movie that summer for that one. And Jackson also cites the issues being with the marketing. You know, we talked about the box. That image of the face coming out of the wall, he didn't like that apparently. He said that that's part of the reason he felt it didn't do as well, because it didn't tell the viewer what the movie's about. And I think he's absolutely right on that fact. Yeah, it, the, the box is scary. The box made me think it was a horror movie, and that's why we wanted to rent it. <laughs> and um, the movie is not, it is not scary at all. But I don't, I feel like I remember the, the trailers for this, and I feel like the trailers really advertised it as like a comedy, a comedy, like a kind of a goofy. Funds, but it came out in the summer, which is also a weird time for it to come out. Oh, Frighteners, you're such a weird film. For sure. Well, you guys got anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? No, just uh, again, to all our listeners, thank you guys. Times have been tough all around, and it just we can't even begin to to communicate the the struggle and the the shenanigans that are people are going through right now. But we're going to keep kicking out episodes for you guys. So thank you for listening. If you have any, you know input or ideas or anything like that hit us up social media all that fun stuff you know mark's still doing his last drive-in watches i saw you last night they did uh what um cannibal holocaust and what else a joe piscopo zombie cop buddy movie you could stop right there i'm sold <laughs> <laughs> dead heat from 1988 is the name of that one okay nice nice i mean yeah you're he's still doing those thanks for being out there keep your head up guys you know we'll keep kicking out episodes for you so thanks yeah and also if you guys have any ideas for cold opens or questions you want us to answer on the episodes feel free to hit us up and we'll take a look at them do you guys like frighteners have you seen it recently on a rewatch why don't you let us know on our social media we're on facebook twitter and instagram you can find more of our content at thegravetalk.com um, we'll have an, another episode out in two weeks and and um, correct me if i'm wrong fellas but is that going to be in fabric this time around 
That is In Fabric. Okay, In Fabric, about a killer dress. It's an A24 film. It's probably going to be... Um, I don't know what to expect, to be honest with you, but I like the idea of a killer dress, so that's why I chose it, and we'll see if everybody ends up liking it at the end of it. So get that watched and catch us next time. Well, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you then. 